0: Thank you for your patience and flexibility. We're going to go ahead and get started. Um, good evening and welcome to All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church for this second in a series, what I hope is a series of debates between Chan Heron, who is a teacher of Bible and apologetics at Calvary Baptist School, and Randall Lord, who is a chiropractor and also a member of the Shreveport Freethinkers Association. Um, My name is Susan Caldwell, and I'm the Director of Religious Education here at All Souls. And on behalf of our pastor, Chaplain Barbara Jarrell, and our board of directors and our congregation, a few of whom um, are here tonight, uh, we welcome you to this home of the free pulpit and the free pew. As those of you who were here last time might remember, um, the last time these gentlemen met on this dais, the debate was on the existence of God, a question on which the members of all souls run the gamut along the spectrum of belief. We may be a little closer to one end on this particular topic, um, but... uh, Still in all, we are the best, I think, um, venue for this debate. I should tell you, in the interest of full disclosure, that our pastor, Barbara Gerald, on behalf of our congregation, has signed, um, joined her Jewish and Christian and other ministerial colleagues in signing the Clergy Letter Project, um, and endeavor to demonstrate that religion and science can be compatible when each is respected and taught within its own domain. We also have a minister from among our ranks, uh, Unitarian Universalist, the Reverend Michael Dowd, who's working actively for a new kind of dialogue on this issue. And he has even written a book entitled, Thank God for Evolution. I wish I wouldn't wait till the last minute to have these bright ideas, but I've actually ordered you both a complimentary copy, which um, I will give you when they come in. Um, As I said, I do feel we're the best possible home for this debate and for the two organizations represented. After all, the Universalists on this continent rose right out of the Baptist tradition, and we're all about the priesthood of the believer. And free thinkers of all persuasions join us here in worship and in membership and have done so for the entire 60-year history of this congregation. Beyond that, the motto of this church is a quote from Francis David, we need not think alike to love alike. So you are all in good and welcoming company, and we're glad that you're here. Let me take just a few moments now to run through the ground rules for the evening. Um, Chan and Randy will each make an opening statement of 15 minutes. They have decided that Chan will go first. Following this, each of them will make an eight-minute rebuttal statement after which they will each deliver a five-minute closing. After that, they will have the opportunity to ask three questions of each other. Unlike last time, we will not take questions from the audience. However, you are invited to bring all of your questions back to the social hall, where we will have refreshments and we'll have a chance to really... Um, have some good conversation, talk, get to know each other. Uh, members of Calvary Baptist and Shreveport Freethinkers and All Souls have all brought food. I think there's going to be a ton of it, so please do stay and join us. And um, without any further ado, I will let Chan begin.
1: I'd like to thank everyone for attending tonight's debate, and I hope that you will find it both entertaining and intellectually stimulating. And I also hope that it will help guide you if you are on a spiritual journey. To begin with, I would like to define some terms. We must first distinguish what we mean when we use the term evolution. I would like to address three different definitions of evolution. Number one is simple change over time. And by that definition, raindrops evolve cities evolve infants to toddlers, toddlers to adults, etc. This kind of evolution is not in dispute. It is observable. It's quantifiable. Definition number two is the special theory of evolution, which I'll refer to as microevolution, which is small changes that take place in an organism over time, producing modifications of old characteristics. For example, Darwin's finches, who observe that Uh, the beak sizes changed from season to season. Also, uh, bacteria's resistance to antibiotics. This again, this definition is also not in dispute. Definition number three is the general theory of evolution, which I'll refer to as macroevolution, which is the extrapolation of the processes of the special theory to explain all of life on the planet with all of its diversity also known as the molecules to man hypothesis can microevolution be extrapolated to account for all of life and its diversity now this is the definition of evolution that I am concerned with I would like for you to picture with me if you will two huge pillars and on which Darwinian macroevolution rests. These two foundational truths are crucial if Darwinian macroevolution is to be accepted. Pillar number one is abiogenesis, life from non-life. Pillar number two is transitional forms, changes from simple to more complex forms of life in the fossil record. Now both of these are critical and necessary components of Darwinian macroevolution. Here's a question. Are the two pillars of Darwinism actually a fact? Now, my method of critiquing this type of evolution will be known as the problem of the airtight alibi. This critique is much like solving a crime. If you start with the assumption that someone associated with a crime is guilty, you're bound to find some evidence that appears incriminating. But if your suspect produces an airtight alibi, you must look elsewhere from the criminal. You can harp all you want about appearances, but it does no good if the alibi is airtight. Macroevolution can be critiqued in the same way. At first glance, many of the pieces of macroevolution seem to fit, but there is no need to answer all of the circumstantial evidence. This can be done, though. Because each point for evolution has its problems, but the details are tedious, especially for non-specialists like uh, many of you and myself. This is a very important procedural point. No amount of circumstantial evidence makes up for an airtight alibi. There is no sense examining the health of each leaf if the trunk is bad. If Darwinism has fatal flaws in spite of some circumstantial evidence for common ancestry you must look elsewhere for an answer. So I would like for you this evening to consider three problems with macroevolution. Problem number one there is no evidence for the first pillar abiogenesis or life from non-life. Now evolution is sometimes called a fact but you can't have the fact of macroevolution unless you have the fact of abiogenesis. So how did life evolve from non-life? How did living stuff come from dead stuff? Answer, no one knows. No one. No one has even any good guesses. There's no need to have a a degree in chemistry here. You don't need to know all the problems of the uh, sequences with the proper uh, protein sequences. You only need to know that evolutionary researchers speak with one voice about the facts of abiogenesis. They all agree that it happened, but that the details are a complete mystery. Forty-five years of research has been virtually fruitless. Note this rather blunt admission from Harold P. Klein, chairman of National Academy of Sciences Committee, after reviewing the origin of life research. The simplest bacterium is so complicated from the point of view of a chemist that it is almost impossible to imagine how it happened. Dean Kenyon, a biochemist and a former chemical evolutionist, now concedes, when all relevant lines of evidence are taken into account and all the problems squarely faced, I think we must conclude that life owes its inception to a source outside of nature. Here's a key question. If they don't know how abiogenesis happened, how do they know that it happened? If evolutionary processes cannot even produce the most basic, amino acid sequences necessary for life then the game can't even get started there's not even a kickoff problem number two there is no convincing evidence for transitional forms which is the second pillar of Darwinian macroevolution remember macroevolution requires gradual development of organisms over time from simple to complex this is said to be evident in the fossil record what is a fossil? Organisms swept along by moving water and buried with the sediments, compacted into rocks, organic material is exchanged by inorganic, producing exact replica in stone. When Darwin advanced his theory of evolution, he knew the fossil record didn't support his idea. In The Origin of Species, Darwin devoted a chapter to difficulties with this theory. With most of his focus on the fossil record, he was troubled by two of its features, the absence of transitional forms and the abrupt First-time appearances of biological groups. Well, given a Darwinian mechanism which views evolution as proceeding in small, successive steps, the fossil record should display gradual transformation replete with corresponding intermediate forms. Yet, Darwin acknowledged in, or- in Origin of Species that this wasn't the case. He bemoaned, but as by this theory, innumerable transitional forms must have existed. Why do we not find them embedded in countless numbers in the crust of the earth? Darwin skirted this problem by arguing that the fossil record was incomplete and poorly studied. He expected that as paleontologists continued to collect fossils, eventually the missing transitional forms and gradual evolutionary transformations would be unearthed. However, over the last 150 years, paleontologists have in Indeed, uncovered a number of fossils that reveal a rich history of life on Earth. Yet, precious few can be considered as authentic transitional forms. If evolution was true, what would one expect the fossil record to look like? Gradual transitions from one form to another, the rule rather than the exception. But that's not what we find. The fossil record appears suddenly in the Cambrian Explosion which is the sudden appearance of animals in the fossil record during the Cambrian period of geological time. And during this event, at least 19 and as many as 35 phyla made their first appearance on the earth. Phyla constitute the highest biological categories in the animal kingdom, with each phylum exhibiting a unique uh, characteristic blueprint or structural body plan. The lack of transitional forms is perhaps the single most embarrassing topic for macroevolutionists, yet their absence is undeniable. This fact is grudgingly recognized by leading evolutionists. Paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould admitted the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. Paleontologist George Gaylord Simpson wrote nearly all categories above the level of families appears suddenly in the fossil record and are not led up to by known, gradual, completely continuous transitional transitional sequences. And David Rowe, a geologist, confesses the record of evolution is still surprisingly jerky and ironically we have even fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we had in Darwin's time. There is no record of step-by-step variation from one thing to another, yet this should be happening all the time, everywhere everywhere with thousands of species for millions of years and billions of individual organisms producing billions upon billions of clear transitional forms. This should be the rule rather than the exception if evolution were were true. Problem number three. The universe looks designed. In his book, The Blind Watchmaker, British biologist and atheist Richard Dawkins writes... Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. In other words, he says that what you see in the universe does look designed, but it's just an illusion. Instead, they are crafted by the blind blind watchmaker. Now, under this third problem, I'd like to give three lines of evidence that the world we discover gives the appearance of design for a purpose because maybe it is designed for a purpose. The first line of evidence is the fine-tuning of the universe. It turns out that the universe is very delicately balanced and extremely sensitive to change. If that balance is upset even slightly in any one of number of critical parameters, the basic conditions or building blocks necessary for life would never be produced. For example, solar luminosity must be precise. The Earth is delicately balanced between a runaway greenhouse effect and a runaway freeze-up effect. The planet's rotation period must be exactly right. If you slow it down, the nights and days are too long, creating temperature extremes. If you speed it up, wind storms would be extreme. The tilt of our axis must be precise, 23 degrees. If it was straight up and down, the equator would be hotter and the poles colder, disrupting the climate. There must be a precise ratio of oxygen to nitrogen in the atmosphere. If the oxygen ratio is larger, life functions will proceed too quickly and organisms will age faster. If there is less oxygen, then life will proceed too slowly. CO2 and water vapor levels must be right. If greater, there will be a runaway greenhouse effect. If less, there will be too little greenhouse effect. Ozone levels must be precise. If greater, the surface temp would be too high with too much ultraviolet radiation at the surface killing all life. What are the chances that natural processes could produce even one planet in the entire universe capable of producing life? The second line of evidence that the universe is designed is the information in the DNA. Humans correctly identify the activity of intelligence whenever they observe a highly recognizable and improbable pattern in an object or an an event. For example, four faces of four famous presidents carved into the side of a mountain, such as Mount Rushmore, can said to have a designer. How do we know? Because we see a recognizable pattern and an improbable event. Just like if you saw, in a fence, cups rearranged to spell out the the phrase, Happy Birthday, John, you could infer that there was intelligence. Because information can only come from intelligence. And yet, embedded within the DNA double helix is a code that is filled with tens of thousands of pages of information. The information in the human genome would fill books piled as high as the Washington Monument. This is no accident, but a detailed plan laid out carefully by an intelligent mind. The third line of evidence that the universe is designed is the principle of irreducible complexity, coined by molecular biologist Michael Behe. He defines irreducible complexity as a single system composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to the basic function, wherein the removal of any one of those parts causes the system to effectively cease functioning. Now, an example here might be helpful. Uh, a mousetrap is said to be irreducibly complex because it has a spring and it has a lever. And if one of those parts ceases to function, the whole mousetrap ceases to function. When viewing the bacteria flagellum, he noticed that it was like a, uh, a motor, an outboard motor. And that was evidence for design. Michael Behe shows that these molecular machines cannot be reduced to smaller parts and still function properly, therefore, refuting Darwinian gradualism. Our argument can be summed up as follows I ask you to consider three problems with Darwinian macroevolution. Problem one there is no evidence for the first pillar, abiogenesis, life from non life. Problem number two there is no convincing evidence for transitional forms, which is the second pillar. And problem number three is that the universe looks designed by three lines of evidence that I just gave you. All design implies a designer, and the universe displays an evidence for design. Therefore, there must have been a designer of the universe. These problems demonstrate that the pillars of Darwinism have crumbled. Thank you.
2: Good evening. Mr. Heron and I will be discussing a topic that is rather controversial. Well, it's controversial amongst the general public. Amongst the experts in the field, it has overwhelmingly been resolved. Like any scientific theory, there remains a few areas of the theory that are unresolved even amongst the experts. I need to get a few definitions uh, in here, too. First is evolution. Evolution is descent with modification. A person develops over their lifetime, but a person does not evolve. Evolution is the difference that occurs between generations. <clears throat> the next one is creationism. It's a theological idea that a deity created life with the wiggle of his nose, and presto changeo, it popped into existence. Next science. Science is a systematic method of discovery where one makes careful observations, collects data, and then arrives at a, at a hypothesis to explain that data, then presents these findings for publication to his peers and review and duplication. Whenever I see or hear a statement like, evolution is just a theory, it makes me wince a little bit as the person making the statement either does not understand what a theory is or does, or does know and hopes you don't. I think it's great to get involved in science and educational issues. It's not okay to have a position before one knows the arguments for and against an issue. The thing that many people don't understand is what theory means in the scientific sense. A theory is not a wild guess. It's not a religious idea. It's not a law. It's an explanation of the known data. What may surprise some of you is that no theory explains all the data. There remain anomalies within every theory. The hypothesis that is accepted is the one that best explains the data. Unlike religious beliefs, no theory is held in such high regard that it can't be challenged with supporting data. It's up to the challenger to present his hypothesis with his supporting data to his peers and leave it to their judgment to be accepted or rejected. In science, one's work must be transparent peer reviewed and duplicated by the colleagues before it's accepted. To be tested, a theory must be falsifiable. Creationism seems to be the only idea that tries to avoid this procedure and appeals directly to the public or school boards to be included alongside with evolution. It has failed the peer review process and has lost every time it's been brought up in court. Yet creationists keep making the same exact arguments that have failed over and over. In 2005, a now famous legal challenge took place in Dover, Pennsylvania. In this case, every famous contemporary creationist was recruited to defend their faith, and they lost in a big way. I'll refer to this case later as the Dover Trial. When Darwin first proposed his theory of evolution, he was the challenger, as most in his day believed that the, in the idea of special creation. He struggled with what he knew this idea would mean to Victorian society and what it would mean to the deeply re- his deeply religious wife whom he deeply loved. In his book, The Origin of Species, he was even honest enough to point out areas that troubled him, like the then lack of transitional species in the fossil record. To date, his theory has mostly stood the rigors of peer review and testing by others. Like any science, it will be improved and modified with new discoveries. As a theory, evolution is as, as robust as any others in science, yet no one seems to be calling for all sides of the theory of gravity to be taught. One of the greatest strengths of a scientific theory is that it must make predictions. Evolution makes many, and these were not obvious in, our, in uh, Darwin's day. The predictions must not be trivial, Insignificant or insignificant. They must stem directly from the theory and they must be falsifiable. The most important point is that these discoveries are independently verified from multiple scientific disciplines. The first prediction he made was the age of the Earth. For the small changes to have led from a single cell organism into multicellular animals such as humans, we would need millions of years of time. In Darwin's day, many still believed that the world was only a few thousand years old. Darwin was correct. The earth is at least millions of years old. Mendelian genetics. In Darwin's day, most people believed that the traits inherited by the offspring would be diluted in successive generations. Therefore, any new traits that arose would diminish with time. Darwin's theory required the preservation of the advantageous new traits. If the pre-Mendelian hypothesis were true, that is the blending of traits, then the theory of evolution had to be incorrect. Darwin didn't know what the uh, mechanisms of inheritance would be and it wasn't until Gregory Mendel discovered them that Darwin was again proven to be correct. Number three, Darwin predicted that man originated in Africa. Darwin and Huxley, after studying other primates, concluded that we and they had a common ancestor that once lived in Africa. Detailed DNA analysis shows a 98% correlation or we're we're identical to 98% of our uh, codes, and the fossil record uh, now shows even uh, greater proof of this descent. This prediction was probably the most remarkable as, during Darwin's time, virtually no hominid fossils of any kind had yet been found. Number four, the fossil record. Darwin makes two separate predictions here. The first is that simple organisms arose first and more complex organisms arose later. And this is exactly what we see when we look at the geological column. The next one was transitional species. In time, some stunning examples were found like Archaeopteryx and Tiktaalik. For those of you who are not paleontologists, Archaeopteryx was the transitional species or the transitional fossil that shows mostly reptilian features and has feathers. Tiktaalik was a a very special and remarkable find. The scientists that were looking for it had deduced exactly when in time this transitional species should have occurred and they were able to go to a map and look at the map and figure out what rock was now exposed that came from that time period and they went and looked for it and they found exactly what they were looking for. Tiktaalik was a a transition between fish and amphibians. The back half of, of the fossil shows that it was almost completely a fish whereas the front half of it looked more like an amphibian. It had a flat head with eyes on the top and its front fins had small bones in it in exactly the same pattern that we have. That is, we have one bone here, two bones here, and lots of little bones here. And that's exactly what evolution would predict, that everything that evolved from that would have exactly that same pattern. Number five, vestigial organs. Evidence of an unintelligent design should be apparent in modern species. A vestigial organ is not one with no function, as many creationists claim, Rather, it's one that no longer serves the purpose it once served. For example, wings on a flightless bird, like an ostrich. It no longer flies, therefore its wings are vestigial. This bird has co-opted its wings for new functions, cording displays, aid to balance when running, and protecting its offspring from the African heat. Another really good example that can be found in human are the propensity to get hernias. Our fish ancestors had their gonads way up in the chest part of the uh, chest cavity and as they went through time the gonads moved down and then finally outside of the abdominal wall and all the blood vessels tubing and nerves and everything had to move with it and when it goes through the abdominal wall it leaves a weakness and which is exactly why people today are prone to get hernias. Number six, atavisms. An atavism is a reappearance of an ancestral trait. For example, tails on humans or legs on whales. These traits only sometimes reappear because the genes that once made them are still in the organism, but usually no longer are switched on. On occasion, these genes do get switched on by a variety of means and the ancient trait reappears. Number seven, molecular DNA evidence. Even if none of the previous predictions or evidence were present, the discoveries in molecular biology would exonerate Darwin alone. In the Dover trial, one of the most compelling lines of evidence presented for evolution was that our history is written in our DNA. This is the prediction that evolution makes. If we and our primate cousins once had a common ancestor, then we should find this evidence at the molecular level of our DNA. Proof now exists that we once had the same number of chromosomes, 24, as other primates. We now have one fewer, we only have 23. What happened was, is that two of the chromosomes merged and left evidence that they were once two. My arguments are that evolution is true because of its explanatory power. Creationism teaches one to be complacent with not knowing. Thank you.
1: While there are a number of points that I agree with Randy on, there are others that need to be addressed. Uh, Randy says, in the scientific process, no theory is held to such high regard that it can't be challenged. Well, this is simply false. The scientific community holds Darwin in such high regard that to dare question him is committing treason. Case in point, Dr. Caroline Crocker, Ph.D. immunopharmacology of George Mason University, just mentioned the intelligent design in her cell biology class and was dismissed. Evolutionary biologist Richard Sternberg PhD molecular biology published an article by Dr. Stephen Meyer who is a leading intelligent design proponent and he was pressured to de- to resign. Dr. Guillermo Gonzalez P- Gonzalez PhD astronomy Iowa State University wrote a book entitled The Privileged Planet which implied that the universe was uniquely designed for a purpose and was denied tenure. The list goes on and on and each one of these scientists dared Question the validity of Darwinism. I thought that scientists were free to ask any question. Uh, Randy says, like any scientific theory, there always remain a few areas of the theory that are unresolved, even among the experts. I agree with him. How did life begin is one of the biggest unresolved questions in biology. Remember that the title of Darwin's book is On the Origin of Species, and Darwin asserts abiogenesis. He doesn't argue for it. Remember that Darwinism must have the fact of life from non-life for Darwinism to be true. As I've mentioned before, no one has any good guesses. And so it seems highly presumptuous to know that it just happened. More than 30 years of experimentation on the origin of life in the fields of chemical and molecular evolution have led to a better perception of the immensity of the problem of the origin of life rather than to its solution. What creates life out of the inanimate compounds that make up living things? No one knows. Nature hasn't even given us the slightest hint. If anything, the mystery has deepened over time. Um, Randy says, to be tested, uh, a theory must be falsifiable. I agree. I agree with him wholeheartedly with Randy on this. and, And so does Darwin. As a matter of fact, he wrote in Origin of Species, page 154, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Michael Behe's work in irreducible complexity has falsified uh, Darwin's uh, theory by Darwin's own standards. Um, Randy also says that uh, for these small changes to have led from single-celled to multicellular organisms like a human uh, would take hundreds of millions of years and Darwin's time most believed the world was only a few thousand years old. Now, Darwin is making a prediction here that given enough time, single-cell organisms would change to multi, multicellular organisms. No, they wouldn't. Why? Because nature disorders. It doesn't organize things. More time will make things worse for the Darwinists, not better. How so? Let's suppose that you throw red, white, and blue confetti out of an airplane 1,000 feet above your house. What's the chance it's going to form the American flag on your front lawn? Very low. Why? Because natural laws will mix up or randomize the confetti. You say, okay, allow more time. Okay, let's take the plane up to 10,000 feet to give natural laws more time to work on the confetti. Does this improve the probability that the flag will form on your lawn? No. More time actually makes the flag less likely because natural laws have longer to do what they do, disorder and randomize. The problem is that evolutionary scientists estimate the age of the Earth at 4.5 billion years, but this doesn't mean that there was 4.5 billion years to uh, evolve the first life. Clear fossils of cellular organisms date, by evolutionary standards, at about 3.2 billion years. Conclusion, life didn't have billions of years to develop, but only a fraction of that, 300 to 600 million years. There's only about a 10 million year window of time available. There's too much complex work needed to be done in too little time under too hostile conditions. Randy offers two examples of some transitional forms like Archaeopteryx and Tiktaalik. I had to look up how to pronounce that. Archaeopteryx is the supposed transition between reptiles and birds, and Tiktaalik was sort of a fishapod, as he described, said to be the link between aquatic and land animals. Now, as for Archaeopteryx, uh, Professor Herbert Nielsen says this, They are no more reptiles than the present-day penguins with their winged fins or transitional forms to fish. And bones of modern birds were found in the same geological strata as Archaeopteryx. Now, for the sake of the argument, I'm going to concede that those two are transitional forms. However, these are not the kind of transitional forms evolutionists need to make their case. Remember that in Darwinian gradualism, we get there one step at a time. Archaeopteryx and Tiktaalik are fully formed, fully functional organisms. Where are the transitions... ...between these two fully formed examples. Imagine with me millions of species with appendages that were part fin and part leg. They would not be able to swim and run. They'd be eaten by the first T-Rex that came along. They wouldn't survive to reproduce. That's why they are not in the, in the record. So Darwin's concept of missing links begs the question in favor of evolution... The analogy envisions a chain with some breaks, whereas the true picture is only uh, described as a few links with a complete missing chain. There are gigantic gaps between the major types of life at every level of the alleged evolutionary hierarchy. However, the whole analogy of a chain assumes the chain of evolution was there and that there are missing links to be found. And what this does, this superimposes an analogy in favor of evolution on the fossil record rather than examining what is actually in the fossil record. Remember from my opening statement that Darwinism rests on two pillars, life from non-life and transitional forms. As we have seen, the evidence is non-existent for pillar number one and speculative and problematic for pillar number two. Modest conclusion... Darwinian macroevolution cannot be called a fact. Instead, it's a rather implausible naturalistic story. Thank you.
2: Chan, I'm going to start with the last point you made in your opening remarks on irreducibly complex. Um, this is an argument from ignorance. What you're saying is that since we don't know something, we know something. That's a non-sequitur. You're saying that something is so complex it couldn't have arisen by any natural or known method. It suddenly popped into existence, fully formed. Therefore, it's a miracle. And it amazes me that uh, creationists keep bringing up this point even though it's been thoroughly debunked by experts. And Michael Behe presented this argument at the Dover trial, and he was shot down in flames. He gave an example of, um, let's see, uh, the bacterial flagella and blood, blood clotting is one of the other ones that uh, Behe uh, proposes. If you look briefly at the blood cl- clotting pathway, you'll see that this doesn't hold up. There are 16 steps involved in this, and this mechanism, in order to be effective, has to have all of them working. Well, creationists claim that these proteins involved had no antecedent, and this is false. Russell Doolittle at the University of California predicted that we'd find at least one of these precursor proteins, and in 1990, he found it. The sea cucumber had a protein that was clearly related to the same one that was found in in the clotting mechanism in vertebrates. Since then, Russell Doolittle and Kenneth Miller have worked out a plausible and adaptive sequence for these precursors and published their findings, unlike Behe, who never seems to want to publish anything except write books for creationists. The evolution of uh, bacteria flagella is also known to involve many steps of co-opting other previous biochemical pathways. Something I wanted to point out, you mentioned the, uh, the example you gave was a mousetrap, that it had, has to have all of its parts working in order to function, that if anything was missing, it wouldn't work at all. And I'll have to agree with you in part on that. It would not work as a mousetrap, but it could be co-opted to be used as something else if some of the parts were missing. And I brought an example of that with me tonight. (laughs) It's a tie clip. It's not a very pretty one, but it does work. (laughs) Sorry I had to do that to you. (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry I lost my place. If the history of science tells us anything is that what what conquers ignorance is research, not giving up and saying God did it. Darwin Darwin touched on this very point when he said, ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. It is those who know little and not those who know much who so positively assert that this or that problem will never be resolved by science. Uh, the next point you were discussing was uh, uh, regarding information, about how information is intelligent. Well, some of it is, but not all information is intelligent. For example, if you, uh, you tune your television to the wrong station, like back in the old days when you had aerials, you could pick up a lot of noise. That noise is information, but it's certainly not intelligent. In fact, if you switch over to a channel where there is some content, I'm not even sure all of that is intelligent. (laughs) Your next point was uh, called the the fine tuning argument. In philosophy, this is known as the weak anthropic principle. But many philosophers uh, contend that this uh, weak anthropic principle is merely a tautology. What uh, it doesn't allow us to explain anything or predict anything that we didn't already know. Evolution exists because the environment changes. In other words, organisms change to meet the environment, not the other way around. Uh, Let's see. The next problem you presented was uh, that the universe appears to be designed. Well, Yes, it does appear to be designed, but my question is, is it designed from the top down or from the bottom up? Uh, if you're looking at something, let's say you're a bull and you see a cow. To you, that cow looks pretty beautiful. To a, to a rat, it wouldn't be beautiful at all. This is something that might step on it. In fact, it would be pretty scary. So in other words, the observer has examiner bias, The uh, next item you had was transitional forms. And true to form, you refuse to see any real transitional forms, as most creationists do. When presented with uh, transitional forms, most creationists will not say that something is partway in between this or that. They'll say it's completely this or it's completely that. When looking at uh, hominid species, many creationists do exactly that. They'll say it's either an ape or it's a man, and they can't even agree amongst themselves uh, which one it is. In fact, some have even been quoted as putting the same specimen on both sides of that fence. The uh, first point that you made was on the issue of biogenesis. In part, I'll agree with you on that. We have not completely figured out how life arose from non-life. In fact, we've, got, we've done, had very little progress in that area. But evolution doesn't really rest on that pillar. Evolution can be true even if we never find out how life arose. Thank you.
1: Was talking about the mousetrap could be used for something else. I wrote down, like what, and I turned around and he answered my question. So, who says that atheists don't have a sense of humor? In my opening statement, I gave three definitions of evolution simple change over time, microevolution, and macroevolution. The third definition was the one that I feel is problematic. Remember that I said that the way I was going to critique macroevolution was the problem of the airtight alibi, and I agree. Randy did give us some circumstantial evidence which seems to fit. Vestigial organs, atavisms, transitional forms that he mentioned, but circumstantial evidence does not help the case if one produces an airtight alibi. I argued Darwinian evolution rested on two pillars that were necessary for it to be true. Necessary. I asked you to consider three problems with macroevolution. Problem number one no evidence for the first pillar, abiogenesis. Problem number two, no convincing evidence for transitional forms. And problem number three, that the universe looks designed. And then I gave three lines of evidence that support the premise that it is designed. I believe that there are some underlying implications and questions that need to be asked and addressed. How can people who all view the same evidence come to completely opposite conclusions? The issue at hand is not competing views of scientific interpretation, but a struggle between two different worldviews, theism and atheism. Both Randy and I view the world and the evidence through our own analytical grid. Everyone has a worldview. Some of you tonight on both sides of the issue did not check your worldview at the door. You listened to what we were saying and agreed or disagreed based on your worldview. Now what's being done here is philosophy first and science second. Science is a slave to philosophy. Science cannot be done without philosophy. Unfortunately, Darwinists have been successful in convincing the public that the only bad science is that which disagrees with Darwinism and that really isn't science at all. They say it's just religion masquerading as science, talking about intelligent design. In fact, the exact opposite is true. It's the Darwinists who are practicing the bad science because their science is built on a false philosophy. In effect, it's their secular religion of naturalism that leads them to ignore the detectable scientific evidence for design. Philosophical assumptions are utilized in the search for causes and therefore cannot be the result of them. This is very important because a lot of these discussions are preceded by a prior discussion that is not scientific or historical at all. It's philosophical. The difference between myself or any other informed Christian arguing the case is not that we are biased, so we must conclude what we do, but it's that our philosophy broadens the possibilities of things we might consider, depending on where the evidence leads us. Philosophical assumptions assumptions can dramatically impact scientific conclusions. I'm a Christian. I am open to either a naturalistic explanation or a supernatural explanation. Both are possible in my world view. I can follow the evidence where it leads me. If a scientist assumes beforehand that only natural causes are possible, then probably no amount of evidence will ever convince him that intelligence created the first one-celled organism or any other designed entity. When Darwinists... Presuppose that intelligent causes are impossible, then natural laws are the only game in town. Likewise, if a creationist rules out natural causes beforehand, then he also risks missing the right answer. But a scientist who is open-minded to both natural and intelligent causes can follow the evidence where it leads. Randy must come up with a conclusion that leaves God completely out of the picture or any intelligent designer because his philosophy demands such a thing. I don't have to come up with that conclusion. I can follow the evidence where it leads me. And that's the most critical distinction. Some people will never consider an intelligent designer because of the implications. Both views presented here tonight have implications. So be it. Science doesn't really say anything. Scientists do. Data is always interpreted by scientists. When those scientists let their personal preferences or unproved philosophical assumptions dictate their interpretation of the evidence, they do exactly what they accuse religious people of doing. They let their ideology dictate their conclusions. When that's the case, their conclusions should be questioned because they may be nothing more than philosophical presuppositions passed off as scientific facts. Thank you.
2: I actually agreed with most of what you just said. (laughs) Let me recap. Science is a method of discovery. It is transparent, testable, and self-correcting. Evolution is a theory that best explains the data and how the current species, including us, got here. Creationism is a theological idea that life and individual species were created out of nothing. Creationists resist the evolution, the theory of evolution, because it's based on the worldview of materialism and naturalism. By the way, atheism is not a worldview. It's a conclusion. But... They are afraid that if taught to their children, where it may lead them. Rejecting something because of where it may lead does not make it false. There's no proof that learning the truth, no matter where it leads, is harmful. If anything, teaching falsehoods as truth has to be harmful. At the conclusion of the Dover trial, the judge stated, the theory of evolution is is imperfect. However, the fact of a scientific theory cannot render an explanation of every point should not be used as a pretext to thrust an untestable alternative hypothesis grounded in religion into the science classroom to misrepresent well-established scientific propositions. For those that oppose evolution purely as a matter of faith, no amount of evidence will do. Theirs is a belief not based on reason. I offer my brief presentation in the hope that you may share my wonder in its explanatory power and will face its implications without fear. I'd like to close with a quote from Michael Shermer. Darwin matters because evolution matters. Evolution matters because science matters. Science matters because it is the preeminent story of our age. An epic saga about who we are, where we came from, and where we're going. Thank you.
0: I like these guys. <laughs> and, and, and I want to tell you, they're going to have a chance to ask questions of each other, but before we do that, I, I want to encourage you to look at them as an example of what we should all be doing. Find somebody who thinks differently from you about anything that's big and important. Get to know that person. Get to know what motivates that person. Have fun with that person and really talk to each other and really listen to each other and find out how they came to think the way they do. You're going to find it fascinating and fun, and I really think it's the only way we go forward. In our world, so I want to thank you both and please let's give him another hand so I'm assuming now that Chan will go first to question you is that correct? Is that the way we want to do this since since okay so if you'll step to the other podium and
2: When we began, I wasn't sure what I was going to ask you until I started listening to your explanations, and then I couldn't write fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned micro versus macro evolution. Micro evolution being small changes that can occur, whereas macro evolutions are big changes that occur over time. Is Am I... Correct. Summarizing that
1: correct? Yes, more of uh, how ma- when I say macro, I'm talking about the molecules to man, common descent that we get all of life on, on the planet and all its diversity. That's, that's what I call macroevolution. Okay, well, let me make sure I understand this.
2: If you go from a primate to a man, is that a micro or a macro? Macro. That's macro. Yes. What keeps... Microevolution from turning into macroevolution over time.
1: Uh, it, the species doesn't change into another species. Like for example, Darwin's finches on the Galapagos Islands. When he uh, looked at the the size of the beaks, and um, you know, over through the seasons, they would change. Uh, their size would change, like. Uh, the during during the drought, the, the beaks, the the birds that had the larger beaks could get the seeds, and the ones that had the smaller ones uh, couldn't get it, and so um, that group would die out. And but there seems to be a, been a wall because that was cyclic. And what we never see is the Galapagos finch go f- from being the Galapagos finch to the Galapagos elephant, and it crosses a species. It remains a finch. That's micro.
2: Okay, let me rephrase that just a little bit. Why can't the Galapagos finch go to something else? What's stopping that from happening?
1: Well, I mean, theoretically, anything's possible. We would have to have a mechanism. And as far as I know, there's no evidence for that mechanism. A finch stays a finch. A dog stays a dog, even though we've got chihuahuas and Great Danes. I could be wrong on that.
2: (laughs) Uh... Going back to your argument about fine-tuning, uh, you implied that this place is designed for life. Yes. That all of these things had to be possible for life to exist. Yes. Somehow life is a special thing. Yes. Why is it only here and not everywhere in the universe?
1: I think that adds to the evidence of it being special.
2: So what this you're saying, this you're planet, is, as
1: far as we know, this planet. And I know the galaxy is huge, and there's many other galaxies out there. And so, uh, and we haven't explored them all. But as far as we know, this the life-prohibiting universes are more common than life-permitting universes. Our universe is life-permitting. Why is that? Well, it's life-permitting. But why just here and not? If there's, if there's... I don't know, I don't know the answer to oh. that question.
2: If creationism is true, why don't we find rabbits in the Precambrian layers? Why don't we find what? Rabbits.
1: I have no idea. Have no idea. Do you hold to the view of strict scientism, meaning which says that if something cannot be verified scientifically, then we can't know it? Well,
2: there are things that happen historically that we can't reproduce. But based on all the evidence and using historical method, we can pretty much conclude what the probability of something was. We can't know it for certain.
1: But I mean, I, I guess... Give me an example
2: of what you mean. I mean, maybe.
1: is science the only way we can know things? Well, about the external
2: world? It's the only verifiable one. All the other methods of knowing, which was I, I touched on in, in the uh, previous debate we had, none of those other methods are verifiable. In other words... You could say you experienced something and nobody else would be able to tell whether or not that's true. We don't know if you really did it, if you are lying to us, or if you were having hallucination, or what was going on. We can't know what you experienced.
1: Okay, but the scientific method itself is not testable by the scientific method. So don't we have to make a lot of assumptions? Yes, we do. Science is based
2: on a number of assumptions.
1: Okay. Such as,
2: well, for example, that the universe is orderly. That gravity, for example, exists today exactly the same as existed yesterday and it will tomorrow. It's based on a number of those types
1: of of assumptions. Yes. Okay. So there's other ways that we can know things. Uh, that are not that they can't be verified scientifically i'm just making sure i understand like metaphysical truths like i know that there's other minds out here besides mine and i'm rational to hold that but i can't test that by the scientific method that's true and that um moral statements like the the nazis were were wrong what they did was evil we can't test that by the scientific method but we're that's correct but we're rational in thinking that Yes. Okay, and then like the laws of math and logic, there we assume those math, and, uh, science, the scientific method presupposes those. Uh, to argue for them would be arguing in a circle. Correct. Yes. Okay, yes. so I'm just making sure that you agree with me that there's other ways besides the scientific method to know things.
2: Well, I wouldn't call it knowing them. I would say it
1: presupposes. Or, or it. let me rephrase that. I'm, I'm rational in holding that. Um, yes. Conclusion. Okay. Yes, you are. Um, now, you, meant, you talked about creationism. And um, the way you defined it, uh, I would agree with. I believe that creationism begins with the Bible and goes from there and says how I can fit the Bible into the data of science. Yes. But intelligent design is different. Let's see if you agree with me on this. It is the study of patterns in nature that are best explained as a result of intelligence. And this requires a minimal commitment Scientifically, to the possibility of, in, of detecting an intelligent causation. So um, I'm not saying that intelligent design, in, intelligent design is not committed to figuring out the identity of the designer. It can't do that. All right. All right. All right. So would you say, giving that distinction, that um, intelligent design is arguing, or, or I'm sorry, that intelligent design is just religion masquerading as science. That's how it appears to me, yes. Okay, but if, if, if it's just requiring that we're uh, trying to find intelligent causes, mm-hmm. all right, if that's the case, not trying to determine the identity of the designer, should intelligent design, as I just defined it, be taught along uh, with the evo- Darwinian evolution in schools as a possible alternative... I would
2: say no because it's not testable. In order for it to be considered science, it has to be testable. So it falls outside the realm of science because of that definition.
1: So you don't agree, you don't agree that intelligent causes are an option for science.
2: Well, an intelligent c- cause could be there, but I don't think we can use science to find it.
1: Okay, fair enough. Um do you feel that scientists should... This is similar to another question too. Do you feel that scientists should consider intelligence as a legitimate cause? Why or why not? Well, how would you test it? That's the, um, pro- that's the problem I have with it. Okay. It's not testable. Searching... Well, we, we, have, a dev- we have a design inference. Based on the in, the information that I the, the example that I gave, like Mount Rushmore, mm-hmm. we can look at that. It's a it's a highly improbable pattern, and it's right. recognizable. And we can say, hey, we know wind and erosion didn't do that. A design. We do that all the time. That's true. And so, uh, couldn't a scientist do that as well? Well, the problem with the Mount Rushmore
2: example you gave is that we know it's it's an it has a natural cause because we did it. We don't know of supernatural causes. We don't know of anything that was created supernatural. Everything we know was created by us or it arose through nature. So uh, if if you came across uh, a statue, you would simply have to infer that it was created by someone, even if you don't know who that someone was. But to suppose that it was created by something that's completely beyond our our ability to comprehend it seems to be a bit of a leap
1: okay thank you okay
0: can we give them one more round of applause please This concludes the formal part of the evening, but as I said, we do invite you back to the social hall where you're welcome to grill these guys to your heart's content and, uh, and eat. Thank you.